This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Professional mountain biker Adam Craig says it's one of the top three places in the universe he's ridden. Where is this magical mountain biking nirvana? It's none other than Brevard, North Carolina home to Pisgah National Forest and DuPont Recreational Forest. The area boasts over 300 miles of peerless single track, not to mention hundreds of miles of gravel roads, creating a near-endless array of routes, terrains, and challenges to explore. Four vibrant bike shops will get you sorted, whether you need gear, service, or a top-notch rental. Top it off with an array of craft breweries, cafes, and gathering spots that have earned Brevard the title as one of the best small towns in America in 2021. It all adds up to a premier mountain biking destination you'll want to experience for yourself. Find out more at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Scott Morris. Scott is a self-described lifelong mountain biker, trail mapper, and programmer. He's the creator of Track Leaders, a live tracking website for bikepacking races, and Topo Fusion mapping software. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So how did you first make the connection between mountain biking and computer programming? Yeah, it was really the GPS system coming online or at least me becoming aware of it but i think <laughs> yeah i think the timing was good in that it was pretty new uh, right when i was coming out of high school and uh really getting into into computer programming mm-hmm. and so there wasn't really you know i think people were trying to figure out what the gps system could do and right. you know, what what new applications there were and yeah there were from a very early age, I got pretty interested in computers and, and programming. Mm-hmm. I, was pretty, I was a pretty nerdy <laughs> uh, kid growing up. Like, I mean, like, you know, I had glasses going into kindergarten. Like, I never, <laughs> <laughs> like that level of nerdiness. Yeah. And yeah, I got super into like Nintendo games and computer games. And I always kind of thought that, thought about making my own company or making my own games. And I thought that was, mm. that was going to be my way of combining my two interests of computers and games. Yeah. But, uh, when I was about 13 or 14, after many failed attempts from my dad to try to get me to do like team sports and <laughs> just awful at baseball and basketball and all these things that people did. I think one of his last ditch efforts was to get me a very crappy mountain bike and uh <laughs> take me out on the trails and man i just fell hard uh for mountain biking i mean i just cool yeah i absolutely loved it and started mountain biking every day i think when i was 14 maybe at least not well every day i could i guess not in the winter but uh yeah. I was super lucky to have trails um, that i could ride to uh, from my house so it was like ultimate freedom of being able to ride yeah. from home to trails mm-hmm. before I even had a driver's license. So mountain biking, yeah, was just, was just became everything to me and computer games quickly fell 
out, out the wayside <laughs> as not being very real. Um, and so then, yeah, it's shifted yeah. to trying to combine something with outdoors and, and mountain biking and programming. And uh, the GPS system was, uh, you know, I think it was online in the early 90s and became available to the public mm-hmm. some years after that. But it was with this thing called selective availability that maybe you remember that, maybe not, but you do. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 That was when they were adding the error, you know, a, a systematic random error to the GPS signal. Right. And uh, I remember my brother borrowed a GPS from someone and he, we tracked this really long ride that we did. And it was so cool to be able to see you know where we had gone on this map but there was like big random shifts where all of a sudden it would be way off the trail i mean way <laughs> much bigger than you know like errors you'd see today uh from gps yeah but um and so i kind of i thought that could be something but the error was really hard to to uh get too too excited about but luckily they turned that selective availability off they meaning the government the u.s government <laughs> Yeah. In 2000, I think. Mm-hmm. And then it started working really good and Garmin started making, you know, really small handheld devices that you could put on your handlebars. And, um, yeah, I thought, okay, maybe there's, there's something here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember you and I connected early on, like, yeah, I think it was early 2000s when, you know, I was playing around with GPS as well and trying to figure out like, how could you create maps and share them with other people? And I remember at the time, like, did, didn't you do like some graduate studies or something around this idea of like, how do you take GPS data and like make it more accurate or like take a bunch of people who ride the same trail and like figure out what is like the true path versus like all these paths that have slight errors in them is it, am i getting that right uh yeah that's right yeah so i i uh was doing my grad work in tucson at the university of arizona in computer science and uh mm-hmm. kind of had aspirations of not only starting like a small company but also doing research and trying to solve problems that people hadn't thought of uh with gps data especially related to the outdoors and so uh yeah, one of my papers was exactly what you just said, which was to take, you know, a collection of rides in an area that could be from one person or could be from multiple people and combine it into uh, a GPS network mm. that uh, gives you only the unique trails instead of, you know, multiple versions of it. And uh, yeah, publish that paper. A smarter person probably would not have published that and made more commercial <laughs> right yeah because everybody like you know, strava now like yeah you know is a thing they're able to kind of figure out like okay you and 10 other people rode this exact same trail segment and you know i mean but at the time like you know early 2000s it was like this is this is a hard problem to solve yeah that's right and strava does it very very well and a couple other people do now but uh yeah based on that yeah. paper i did get a few job offers or inquiries. And I remember being in an interview <laughs> yeah. or two and people straight up asked me, why did you, this is like a really complex algorithm you came up with. Why did you publish it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Interesting. And I don't know if anyone, you know, really used that certainly it was 
the idea. I don't know if they actually used the algorithm or or got maybe it got them started. But uh, yeah, that's just how the academic world is. Like you share things, and uh, you know, I'd rather be known as someone that can solve problems than just be known for someone that solved one problem. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, did you work with like any of the GPS companies uh, over the years? Because again, like the GPSs, you'd mentioned the Garmin's like when those came out, like those weren't great. Like I think most people kind of understood like these could be a lot better and there's like a lot of issues with them. So were you able to like work with any of these companies or, or have you been focused more like on the software side? Uh, yeah, I would, I kind of always treated the hardware as something I just had to deal with and, yeah, and, you know, process <laughs> yeah. the errors and do what I could. And, um, yeah, I never really had like a good open channel with Garmin or anything to give feedback. Uh, but, uh, other than that, occasionally they became aware of what I was doing and wanted, wanted to hire me, <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah. uh, I refused <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so yeah, I mean, still kind of back in the early two thousands, um, you and your brother started Topo fusion, created this software for viewing Topo maps on a computer and being able to overlay GPS data on them. And now that's something that we take for granted. I think, you know, I mean, we've got Google Maps and all these online solutions, but what made you decide to start Topo Fusion? Like, what was what was the problem you were trying to solve back then? The biggest thing was that every other piece of software that we knew of or found um, at that time, we determined that it pretty much sucked. <laughs> 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 That's really the reason we, we just, like, we we couldn't find anything that did what we wanted to do, which was just have a really clean, easy to use interface for loading your tracks and planning rides and, and doing it in a way that was, um, I don't know that, that, uh, like Tolorme Topo USA was one of them. And the interface was just mm -hmm. atrocious. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> zoom in and out the tracks. You could never tell where the tracks were going. And what else was back there? Maybe National Geographic Topo with an exclamation point. Yeah. And both of those, I remember using both of those and they were, didn't they like come on CD-ROMs yeah, and stuff? Right. Like, I, I don't feel like they were even internet connected, whereas Topo Fusion was, right? Like you were getting the the map tiles or, or was it like a self-contained? Yeah, you could just download a, a really small file, uh, you know, even off of this was dial-up days back then. Mm-hmm. And then the maps came from uh, Terra Server, Microsoft Terra Server. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that that made a that was a really cool opportunity. It was the, not only the GPS system and Garmin's coming out, but also yeah, that there was this map server that was public domain, and that we could download and display. And then yeah, you didn't have to like go to the store and buy a piece of software in a, in a box that had a bunch of CDs. Right. And then the maps were static, you know. So it's a different little different model yeah. of mapping software but uh yeah mainly we just wanted a program to map our own rides the way we thought that it uh, should be done and uh mm. so we saw this need uh for something that we wanted and it seemed like we were the right people to to fit that need so anytime you you're in that kind of situation 
it's a pretty special place to be. And, uh, yeah, Topo Fusion was, uh, we just last month, a couple weeks ago, we was the 20th anniversary of the first release of Topo Fusion. <laughs> yeah. So oh, wow. it's, uh, it's 2002, which I, I think single tracks, you started a little before that. Is that right? Yeah. We started the website in like 98, oh, 99. Wow. Cool. Um, but yeah, didn't, didn't start doing mapping stuff until a few years after that. Okay. Yep. Because yeah, I remember some really early on conversations um, with you about yeah mapping and showing things and uh, but yeah maybe in the nineties you were more of like a blog kind of a yeah I mean we were always we always were about helping people find trails but yeah just mapping wasn't a thing yet like so you also started the Arizona Trail Race in the early two thousands and since that time the Arizona Trail Race and others like it seem to have really exploded in popularity. I'm curious to know like what the growing pains were like along the way. Like did was this was this kind of like a easy and natural thing to do or or what was it like starting a bikepacking race back in the early two thousands? Yeah, the Arizona Trail Race, I think uh, similar to Topo Fusion, grew out of uh, a need that I saw that's something that didn't exist and also something that I wanted to do uh, myself, uh, which was mm. to race my bike on single track for multiple days. Mm. And at the time, the only things that were similar were uh, the Great Divide race, which was the predecessor to Tour Divide, um, there was something called the mm-hmm. Grand Loop that Mike Curiac put at put on out in Utah, but nothing that was on mm-hmm. single track. And so I did I did those races, and uh, I failed spectacularly at Great Divide <laughs> Great Divide race. Um, it was it was uh, I made all the mistakes you could possibly make, but also it was dirt roads, and that was my excuse at the time. I was like, oh, it's all dirt roads, but I'm I'm a mountain biker, you know. <laughs> I can I uh, yeah. But yeah. the truth is, it's hard no matter what kind of surface uh, uh you're doing it on and what the conditions are but mm-hmm. uh this was 2006 that i started the first easy t 300 the 300 mile version of the arizona trail race and mm-hmm. at the time it you know it felt like something new i mean it wasn't it wasn't uh in reality it's just riding your bike uh for a, a lot of hours and a lot of miles mm-hmm. and we now we know now that the surface whatever doesn't matter if there's a lot of hike a bike or if it's rideable but at the time, you know, I wasn't really sure it was a good idea, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 300 miles of, of stringing together rides that had crushed me individually. You know, it was like putting together 12, yeah. 12 rides, that all-day rides that just absolutely destroyed me on their own. And so what was going to happen? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Were, were you just like looking at a map? Or, I mean, it sounds like you had ridden most of it. Or had you ridden all of it just like at different times? Yeah, I had done it as a tour. I had I had ridden the Arizona Trail from end to end uh, with a friend of mine, Lee Blackwell, um, and it taken twenty some odd days. And uh, so I knew the trail pretty well, and I knew this racing thing was was uh, really Mike Curiac's uh, idea of self supported and unorganized bikepacking races, although we didn't call it bikepacking mm-hmm. at that time, but uh, I did not. Yeah, but there wasn't one on single track. And so that was what was super interesting to me hmm. was to, to put it on this this trail uh, that was coming together uh, at the time. 
And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the jury's still out on whether it is a good idea or not. <laughs> I think if you tell people, if you ask people right after they finish, most people uh, would say it's not a good idea. But but <laughs> but, uh, but it's yeah, no, it's been an awesome thing. I think a lot of people have fallen in love with the trail and with bikepacking and you know grown a lot and pushed a lot of limits, and um, that's been super rewarding and super awesome. Uh, to see but uh as far as growing pains there have definitely been some i mean there's always been little controversies and and things that happened but i I don't really think it's been anything bigger than what you would expect out of a group of humans trying to coordinate with each other and communicate with each other and Mm -hmm. and uh compromise on different ideas and the way they see stuff so right I think the bikepacking community is really awesome. And, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it's been outrageous or higher than what you'd expect. Hmm. And as far as popularity, you know, they're still not really exploding. I think hmm. at least the triple. It's like the idea of it is really yes. popular, but, but sounds like people aren't actually like doing it. Well, yet. Is that is that kind of where we're at? Yeah, I, I think it's just that it's really really hard. <laughs> I mean, the idea, yeah. yeah, it's one thing to look at routes and you know pack your bags and stuff, but once you get out there, yeah, it's just it's really hard, and it's hard. It's so hard that there aren't a lot of people who race year after year. Hmm. You know, bike packers. There's exceptions. There's definitely people who are long long time bike pack racers and who can pull it off consistently. But most people I know mm-hmm. and myself included did it for a number of years. And then, uh, yeah, kind of decided that it was super hard and super, maybe not that good for your body, for your body <laughs> and your mind mm-hmm. to be pushing sleep mm-hmm. deprivation and pushing that, that many hours on the bike. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I'm thinking mostly or speaking mostly about the triple crown races, which is, Tour Divide, Colorado Trail Race, and the AZT. And yeah. those have not, you know, they haven't gotten super huge. The AZT and the, and the Colorado Trail have a limit of 74 riders. Mm. And that's, that's, I'm guessing based on the Forest Service, Correct. Uh, right? Yeah. You, that's the, if you have over 75, you need a permit. That's right. Yeah. That's the non-commercial, non-permitted group or competitive event limit mm-hmm. of 74 people. And so, you know, it, they've pushed against that a little bit or maybe had to turn around, turn away a couple people, but then people get in usually with the wait list when people cancel, but hmm. it's not like, you know, 500 people are trying to sign up for these events. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's interest has increased, but um, yeah, I think they're somewhat self-limiting just because they're, they are so hard, especially in the last five or six years, yeah. you know, there's tons of new bikepacking routes all over the, country and world and uh that in that sense bikepacking races definitely uh races are growing um but you know are we ever going to see two thousand people wanting to race the azt (laughs) maybe not (laughs) yeah the the arizona trail race too i remember it it's being sort of unique and maybe this is when you were kind of you know looking at going from the the 300 or the 350 to the 700 or 750 um, like the full route of it. And part of the route that's right had to go through the Grand Canyon, I guess, where, you know, you're obviously not allowed to bike. And so part of that was like, you had to break down bikes and carry them. So, I mean, is, was, 
when you were planning this out, were you thinking about those things? Like, oh, we need to get permits. We need to like ask permission. Or was it more just like, Hey, this is out there. Like we want to do it and we're going to, we're going to just make it happen. And, and yeah, deal I'd with, say more of you know, the latter we need to um, after the fact, you know, throw it out there and keep it small. And it wasn't really on people's radar to begin with. And then as it slowly grew, there was concerns that, yeah, we'd get attention from land managers and such. And I, I knew it was never going to be fully a secret. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the approach to, to software too, right? Like I'm, I'm making this connection now where in the software world, you don't like ask permission. Like you just do stuff and then like sort of figure it out later or like yeah, you know, regulations right. you catch up with it or whatever. Yeah, sort of that same ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you adapt as as things uh, develop, but you sort of put it out there and, and see how it goes. So, yeah, there was certainly never a master plan uh, yeah. for for topo fusion or, or track leaders or uh, <laughs> trail race. It was just they all seemed like really good ideas and mm. to put out into the world. Uh, yeah, yeah. So another project of yours is bikepacking.net. and I. On there, there's a page listing ultra endurance records for races like the Tour Divide and the Hurricane 300. And I know that's a resource I've used at times, like writing articles or, you know, doing research on athletes. Um, and yeah, just seeing like who has the record for this route or what is the record. Are you able to keep the list up to date? It seems like, seems like a really tough task to like keep the records for one, but also to like verify them and stuff. Like, is that something that you are able to take on or want to take on or, or does like, should that even exist? I guess I just have lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That page is kind of a funny, kind of a funny one. I mean, I started it just because it didn't really exist. There were no, and I just wanted to sort of coalesce um, a few different events into one page, mm-hmm. but the, the idea is really just to, uh, give something people to shoot for and aspire to. And I don't, I don't think it's claiming really to be Mm -hmm. anything super official. You know, I mean, the the bike packing. Yeah. But there is nothing else is Uh the problem. I mean, yeah, yeah. I see it as a problem (laughs) as a journalist, as someone who's like, okay, like I need to make sure this is accurate or this is a fact or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the only thing that's out there for that. You know, track leaders has a pretty good archive of a lot of, old events but it doesn't necessarily call out records and, and such but um we're maybe in the best position mm, to yeah possibly verify uh, those things but uh the reality is i just for you know mm-hmm. in, in my opinion it's totally up to the individual race directors uh as to what they consider the races or what they consider the records mm, are yeah um and so if they tell me mm-hmm. that this such and such record is broken by this person, you know, then I'll update that page. Um, and I don't, I don't take responsibility for, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, being the ultimate word on whether a record is official or not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there is kind of a need for uh, yeah. something a little bit better, uh, than that. And possibly that's a new website like the FKT one in the running world. Right. Right. And I've seen that one. And, and again, it's like, that's a really tough thing to do. Like I remember reading years ago that there's some record or database of mm-hmm. uh, people who've climbed Mount Everest 
And, you know, there's different records like mountaineering records and all these, all this like paperwork exists somewhere like in Nepal or something like some person has decided to like keep this up. And, you know, people will like debate like, oh, did so-and-so actually summit? And, you know, there will be like years of back and forth, like, you know, you need to produce evidence and, you know, like all kinds of stuff like that. And it's interesting now because like, FKTs are becoming popular, you know, especially with the pandemic. A lot of athletes saw it, I guess, as a way to like get out and compete with, you know, kind of on their own terms and and on their own time. So like, it seems like it's becoming more of a thing where people want to know, did this person do it or, or who has the record? But it also seems like it's a really hard thing to do, even with today's technology. Like, do you see, do you see potential problems with that in terms of just like the politics of it and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, maybe we're at, at a little bit of a turning point with that, with more uh, higher profile riders getting into FKTs and bikepacking a little bit. Um, I, I may be a little naive thinking that, yeah, this one mm-hmm. webpage that I maintain is, is uh, sufficient, you know, g- going forward. <laughs> I, I think it has been in the past. There hasn't really been too many super controversial uh, FKTs, but uh, but um, yeah, it could change um, in the future. And there is definitely a good argument to having something more like the running model, where there's a uh, an official, a more official. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It, it's hard. Bikepackers are very independent people, and and you know. I think a lot of people bristle at the idea of a governing body or any one official saying anything. And I, I've always kind of viewed right. that records and wins and routes are ultimately subject to, you know, the, the, uh, I don't want to say popular opinion, but you know, what the community thinks in the end is the most important thing. And mm, yeah. Yeah. Names on web pages are in some ways, uh, less important uh than you know what people think and about a particular effort or a or a record so yeah i feel like bikepacking is unique you know especially these races i guess when we're talking about the big races like it's there's like this tension between like official and unofficial right like like yes there are some records and we are timing it and you know there's someone who finishes first um, but at the same time, we want it to be laid back and we want it to be simple and we want it to just be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is unofficial, yeah, it, but it's it official. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a really fine line. It is. Yeah. And we, we dance on both sides of that, I think with these, um, events and, uh, to be honest, that's part of one of the reasons that I stepped down from, uh, putting the Arizona trail race on is that, that, that dance is a little bit stressful and, uh, mostly from the perspective of uh, <laughs> land managers who might possibly uh, decide that, you know, these, that, that it's too far on the side of official or not following uh, the rules. And particularly with the mm-hmm. AZT is kind of unique in that it crosses Grand Canyon national park. And it's kind of amazing that that has been allowed to yeah. go on for this many years, but you know, it's the, one of the most visited national parks uh, in the country and understandably they have a lot of challenges to managing people and a lot of challenges coming up with rules. And you know, I wouldn't completely blame them to if one day someone high up in the park decides that 
the AZT race is not something that should be tolerated. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and so, yeah, that, that, that definitely caused me some, some stress. And I think it causes uh, the new race director, John Schilling, some stress as well. But, you know, it's, it's worth dealing with as well because that race is such a special thing. It's such an amazing thing. So I'm really great, grateful that he has taken that uh, mm. responsibility on. Yeah. Yeah, that, for sure. I mean, that's what makes bikepacking what it is too, right? Like you don't want to mess with it too much. Um, but yeah, at the same time, there are, there are those challenges. So tell us about track leaders. What led you to create that and how does it work? Okay. Yeah. Track leaders, uh, is a kind of a joint venture between uh, myself and Matthew Lee and, um, Matthew's probably best known for being in the film ride the divide, mm -hmm. which was, uh, kind of the first major bikepacking race, uh, movie and probably still the best known one maybe, but followed the 2008 tour divide race, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and, he, and he's won it a, a number of times, right? Including in 2008. Yeah. I think he raced seven years in a row. It finished seven years in a row. Hmm. Um, and won it four or five times out of that, those seven. But, uh, he took over, well, he created the tour divide race, which was just a spinoff of the great divide race from my Kyriak mm -hmm. and tour divide. In the end, Matthew had the enthusiasm, uh, and <laughs> the, the, and the love of the route. And that's why people went to tour divide as opposed to the, the GDR, mm -hmm. but it became the, the main divide race. And, um, right at that time around 2008, 2007, Global Star was started producing the spot device for the first time. Mm. And so this was a really new thing. And somehow Matthew heard about it and he had this revelation that this could be a way to actually follow uh, the mm. tour divide race, yeah. make, make it a spectator race in a way that doesn't intrude on the experience of the racers. Mm. Um, okay. I think, yeah, that was a key point to him that, uh, you should still be able to go out there and disconnect and ride your bike and have it be a relatively pure experience if that's what you're looking for. Mm. And so he was able to get spot to, uh, I think sponsor, uh, one of the first, one of those early tour divides and got a fleet of, well, I say a fleet of spot devices, but I think there was like 15 people in the race maybe, um, <laughs> at that time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and he he uh, kind of knew that I was uh, from Topo Fusion. Knew that I was a GPS nerd um, <laughs> and programmer. And I had met Matthew in the 2005 Great Divide race, uh, and which I did not finish, and <laughs> and he did. But I had met him there, and so kind of knew. Well, it was a pretty small community at that point. But uh, the funny part was that I think in the one of those early AZT races, he offered to let me use those spot trackers that he had got for the previous year's tour divide. Oh, cool. And he, this was, this was a ploy to get me to do the mapping software uh, for him <laughs> mostly, I, I think, but I said, no, <laughs> I said, I said, uh, no, I, I had reservations about what it was going to do to the event mm -hmm. and the, not, not only the experience of the riders, but also kind of the, uh, what's the right word? The, making it more visible to the public or yeah. land managers. And, and so I turned him down, uh, that, that first year of AZT 
and said, no, I, I don't know that this is a good thing for bikepacking. But then uh, over the next couple of months, I realized that this was going to be a really, really cool thing uh, for bikepack racing, mm. that I was a big fan of Tour Divide and Colorado Trail and, and some of these other events that were coming out now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it just had, it was something I had to be uh, a part of and my skills were just like perfectly aligned to, to do it in a way that, uh, you know, where I was not only a participant, but in a fan. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like I could do a pretty good job on it. So, uh, yeah, we started collaborating and started tracking not only bikepacking races, but dog sled races and sailing races and running races. And mm-hmm. so now, now we track, uh, quite a few different kinds, but bikepacking is still our the main thing we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And probably in terms of the number of events that we track it, we track more bikepacking races than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. But, uh, cool. Well, so yeah, you said that this, I mean, the whole genesis for track leaders was around the time that, that the spot devices came out 2007, 2008. Yep. You know, that's, I mean, that's a lifetime ago in terms of technology, right? Like that was right. Maybe right around the time the iPhone came out or just before. So is, mm-hmm. is it spot like, is that still the best way to, to track these outdoor races? I mean, I know obviously there's a lot of places, especially on a, a race like Tour Divide. I'm sure there's lots of places where there's no, you know, cell phone service or anything like that. But do you see other devices like smartphones? becoming viable for doing this anytime soon? I mean, right now you and I are talking on a, on a satellite internet connection, right? Like you've got, you've got internet wherever you go. So do you see that like sort of shifting or, or are we still, still going to be using spots for the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. We're talking, uh, I'm camping right now and I've got Starlink set up. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, it's a great yeah, connection my... too. It's not like, you know, <laughs> super fast. Up. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, changing things, uh, for mobile living for sure. But, uh, as far as satellite trackers go, it's a really good question. Um, I wish I knew the answer, of course, so I could plan, um, (laughs) our our business (laughs) model. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And there's a few things coming out soon, probably in the next two or three years, like the late, the next version of Starlink satellites are going to have essentially a cell tower on them oh, wow. for low low bandwidth um i think it's t-mobile will be mm-hmm. be able to talk to these satellites and send emergency texts um, anytime you can see a, a satellite and mm-hmm. probably some data too and maybe tracking will come out of that um as well so that'd be through your phone and the new iPhones too, like they have the SOS feature, which I don't know that that like, that's right. You know, obviously it's not for playing around. It's not for just like going on a race, but, but yeah, it seems like that's where we're heading. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I think that spot or global stars devoting, uh, the bulk of their satellite bandwidth to the new iPhone when that comes out. And so we could see tracking, uh, through that, uh, um, as well, but the, I think there's still a need for a dedicated tracking device. Um, mm. it, it depends on the event a little bit. You know, if you're if you're talking about an ultra running race or a, or a bike pe- or a bike race that's not a, one of these unofficial bike, you know, joke joker races like 
I put on or, or, uh, you know, where if it's a little bit more official, you know, are you really going to rely on every participant, uh, to carry their phone, to keep it charged, to like not have it crashing all the time Mm. or full of space or, you know, whatever. Um, it's a, it doesn't really make sense to, to rely on participants, uh, for certain events, mm-hmm. um, whereas if you can just have a dedicated tracker that you give to them and uh, it's on and it's always on, they never have to touch it and they put it on their back or whatever and, and it goes. Um, mm-hmm. That that's still an important um, piece. But for a bike packing race, um, yeah, you know, especially ones that are a little more laid back than than others, uh, you could you could say, yeah, a phone is, is fine. You don't need to have a spot or an in reach or or rent one. Um, yeah, I feel you're us. speaking exactly to me because yeah, I mean the reason <laughs> I asked this is because I you know I did one of these Joker uh, bike packing races um, recently one? this year and yeah and I was like well I'm not racing it so I don't I, I don't care that it's like super official and that it's you know it's tracking me every ten seconds or minute or five minutes whatever it is on a spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also obviously like, I'm not going to let my phone run out. It's a, it's my smartphone, right? Like these days yeah. <laughs> we make sure <laughs> that we, we, our phone is working at all times, um, no matter what we're doing. So yeah, it seems like yeah. there's that opportunity. And this race was somewhere where I pretty sure there was, you know, cell coverage for 95% of it or whatever. Um, so yeah, that makes sense that you kind of split that out. Like if this is a serious race, like there, there really isn't anything better than spot. Um, but yeah, maybe for other races there, there are other technologies. Yeah. Which event did you do? I did the hurricane. Oh, cool. Carlos's. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yep. And right. You, I mean, and they use spots for that race as well and it's on track leaders and everything. Um, but yeah. There's plenty of not serious people, I guess, that do it. Um, that yeah, don't track it. Yeah, and that that's true of even the yeah, even on some of the more serious bikepacking races, only the you know maybe twenty or thirty percent are really racing hard. The rest are just ah, you know, it's still they're they're riding hard, but mm-hmm. they maybe don't care as much about their placement and such. Yeah, and for people like that, yeah, a phone, even if you don't track for ten hours or or something. Right. That that might be okay in certain situations, yeah. but uh, yeah, in other cases, if it's a hundred mile ultra race uh, <laughs> that has no cell coverage, then you know they need to know where everybody is all the time, and they want right. they want yeah. someone pinging every five minutes. So that that kind of a case, you know, I don't think is going to change in, in the next five years, um, possibly not the next ten years uh, mm. until because the limitations of satellites uh and higher bandwidth um i think are a long ways out for being overcome yeah yeah and it it is interesting i mean you bring up a good point that the tracking is you know i mean it sounds like initially the idea was well this is a way that people can like sort of follow along on the race so it's it's kind of like a way to to broadcast it but but really also you're talking safety um, in terms of like race directors being able to know where people are on the course. Um, and then also, also, I mean, is it, do you feel like it's an accurate way to, to track a race? Like to know, 
somebody finished the race and they stayed on the course and they finished, you know, start and finish at the time that they said they did? Like, is it a pretty accurate record of like finish times? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. Um, you know, you can't tell the difference between a sprint finish, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two people, you know, finish within 10 seconds or even a couple of minutes mm-hmm. of each other. Mm-hmm. Then you have to rely on either someone there who saw them or self-reporting yeah. to say like, Oh yeah, I, I crossed the line before this person did. Mm-hmm. But generally for a race that's, you know, a day or two or longer, you know, people are coming in much more spread apart mm-hmm. and, uh, it is pretty darn accurate as far as showing when people started, when they finished and whether they stayed uh, on the route, because it's, it's very hard to fake, you know, it's just a device that's transmitting your location and uh, no one I know is sophisticated enough to uh, hack a dedicated spot tracking device yeah. um, and change what it's transmitting uh, to the satellites and to the ground stations. Um, that does bring up an interesting point that with the phone tracker, that becomes much more of a possibility where mm. people could, you know, someone could write a little app or something that, that hacks the, the, uh, tracking function mm. and, yeah. and then tra- transmit something that's not reality. But right now that's a, with a dedicated tracker. Yeah. That's very, very hard um, mm. to fake. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking of like Strava too, where, I mean, they take data from any device. I mean, you can upload a file and it right. you know, counts that toward KOMs and, and things like that. And so, yeah, that, and we have heard, especially in the early days, we heard about uh, e-doping, right? Like the idea of people would manipulate. Yeah, them. yeah. There was websites that you could upload. Yeah. Add 10%, you know, speed or whatever. And it was super easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But right. I guess you're saying with spot, you can't do that. I mean, you're getting the data directly from spot, I guess. Like they have some kind of API uh, that, that gives you that data. That's correct. Yeah. And so there's really no, no opportunity to, to uh, mess with it uh, in any way. Do people ever say like, oh, my spot like malfunctioned or, I mean, cause you do see that, like you'll see a weird waypoint or something and, and you can usually chalk that up to, to some kind of error. Yeah. You, usually you can tell, you know, you'll, most points will be on the route and then all of a sudden you get one or two that are clearly, you know, at the top of a peak or something. Mm-hmm. And it was impossible for them to have gone up there or it won't have you know, shown that they cut the course randomly. It's not going to show them on the route. Uh, most likely it's just an error, but, uh, yeah, what you said there is, is the one way that there is an issue in, and that's if they aren't tracking at all. Um, then yeah. you can't really say where they were or if they stayed on route. And, mm-hmm. and that happens, you know, sometimes naturally, sometimes, I don't know, they, your tracker falls and, into the bottom of your pack or something yeah. isn't transmitting well or it runs out of batteries and you didn't notice. Yeah. And I think in very, very rare cases we've had people turn their trackers off and then do something they did not want to be seen. Mm, yeah. uh, possibly not, not, not really cutting the course that I can think of, but definitely we've had people where they went off course, then they realized what had happened. Mm-hmm. And instead of, they didn't want to turn around and go back to the point where they lost the course. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they turned their tracker off and then they returned to the course via a shorter route and then, then turn their tracker back on and kept going as though <laughs> nothing had happened. Right. Interesting. And that, 
Yeah. And that, you know, that's one where you just need a human to look at it and, and say like, well, okay, is it possible that they went back to where they were supposed to, to ride the whole route? Mm -hmm. Or is it impossible just based on the time? And so there's still ways to figure that out, but that, that is the one, the one place where people could possibly cheat is, uh, yeah, if they turn their tracker off or it happens to have turned off, Mm. uh, then, then it's hard to say what they did. So the best thing, if you're getting a record or an FKT is, uh, you know, obviously to, uh, have a complete full track with no real holes in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even if you go off course, keep it, keep it running. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Cool. So random GPS question for you. Why is elevation data so notoriously difficult to track with a GPS? Like, I mean, you know, people go on a ride with their buddies and four people will have like four different elevation plots and, and four different like, you know, climbs and descents. Why, why is that? Why is it so hard still to get that data accurately? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a good question. Um, I think it's the biggest thing is it's just an inherent limitation to satellite tracking uh, in general, which is that you're, you're, if you think about triangulation, uh, you're, you're looking at time differences between the satellites you can see. But if you're on the, earth, the surface of the earth, you can only see satellites that are either above you or near the horizons. Mm-hmm. And you cannot see satellites that are below you, like on the other side of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Because the signal can't go through dirt or right. mantle. And, and so if you think about trying to triangulate a, 2d location if you've got a satellite on say to the directly to the north on the horizon and a satellite to the south right on the horizon and you use those two time differences to figure out your distance between those two mm-hmm. the errors um, cancel each other out and you're going to get a really good fix uh, in that way okay but and then same with east west and you don't they don't have to be north south east west but if you have three or four satellites near the horizon um, in any reasonable direction which you mostly do um, given how the constellation works out um, you're going to get it be able to get a really good 2d fix mm-hmm. but for 3d all you have is basically the satellite that's right above you or any yeah. that are near and not anything below and so the errors add up and it's a lot harder to accurately figure out um, your yeah your elevation then there's also some problems with like the model of the earth because it's not an actual it's not a sphere, but it's also not an ellipsoid. Hmm. And so approximating that, it can be difficult too. And then, uh, oh, so there's, I think the general rule is that your, if your 2D accuracy is say one meter, then your 3D would be, your elevation would be double that or 1.7 times that. Okay. So there's that source of error. But uh, if you're talking about comparing rides with your buddies and why, why a total climbing uh, number is going to be off. Mm-hmm. The other thing to understand there, I think, is that it's a sum. So you're you're adding up um, differences in elevation as you go along mm-hmm. on a ride. Mm-hmm. And so the more errors there are, it just accumulates as you go along. Um, so that that really uh, can throw things off too. And so it's a big it's a challenge. Um, you know, most software has including Tabo Fusion has a, you know, some kind of filtering where it's 
smoothing the data mm-hmm. a little bit yeah. to get so that you don't add up so many, so many small uh, ups and downs that aren't actually there. Mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes it can penalize it too. Like if you've got right. little, if there's actually little ups and downs on the trail, <laughs> it can, it can smooth those out. Uh, so yeah, at some point you just have to kind of choose an algorithm and go with it. And yeah, especially if you're comparing between different apps, like Strava and Garmin, you know, then there's going to be different, you know, variances and then different devices. And so, yeah, I always take a elevation gain number with a grain of salt, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And it's funny too, because like you said, this has always been a problem and there's a reason why it's a problem. Like it's not going to be solved. Unfortunately. I mean, yeah, there's not going to be like GPS version two that, that eliminates it. I mean, you know, any, anytime they make improvements in overall accuracy, that's good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is kind of an inherent limitation to just determining a position on a sphere <laughs> on a planet with satellites. Yeah. 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 And a lot of the devices now, they, they have like a barometric altimeter that's built in that I guess tries to like reconcile some of that and improve it some, but I've found that that doesn't really help. Like, do you have any opinion on that? Like as to whether that can give you better data or does it, I feel like it gets confused because barometric pressure also changes, right? Like the weather is, is constantly changing. So I don't, I don't know how that can make it better. Yeah, that's right. You know, you could get a low pressure system or something coming in that changes it. It's, I think it does help if you, if you're one of those people who calibrates their altimeter, oh, the barometric. Yeah, that's probably so what like I'm doing wrong. Uh, yeah, but it takes <laughs> effort. You know, I, I only know one person that I've ever <laughs> seen do that before. Uh, you know, like before a ride, they're like, okay, what is the elevation here? And I'm going to plug that in to reset the barometric. Right. How do you uh, even know? Do you look for one of those like, like markers? Yeah. <laughs> Survey <laughs> marker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you were really obsessive, you would. You'd like anytime you get to one of those USGS markers, you get that exact <laughs> elevation <laughs> and put it in. Yeah. But, you know, if it's your house, you know, you can know, you know what your right. elevation is there. Or you can look at a topo map if you're camping somewhere or a trailhead. But, yeah, I think that takes it to an, a little bit of an obsessive level. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I don't think that barometric really totally solves that. In some cases, it can make it better, but it's definitely not a not a silver bullet. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned you're you're currently coming to us live uh, from your van somewhere in Utah. When did you fully commit to the digital nomad lifestyle, and and how did you make that jump? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess for us. Uh, meaning me and my partner, Esther, um, it was kind of just a natural progression. We were, we lived in Tucson for a bit and when I was a grad student. I never spent the summer there. And so we were always going to Colorado or other places that were cooler and never really staying in one place for a, uh, an entire year. Mm-hmm. And then in, let's see, in 2014, we spent the summer uh, four months of the summer living off our bikes while riding the Continental Divide Trail. Mm, cool. Yeah. And so we did that. And then in 2015, we were living out of a minivan. So we upgraded to a minivan and just traveled all over the West. And then in 2016, we finally got a scant trailer, which is a little 13 foot fiberglass 
eggshell kind of a small trailer mm-hmm. and we towed it with the minivan and you know yeah people asked us then like how can you live out of this you know just a tiny little scamp trailer and we thought well this is a luxury compared to <laughs> just the minivan or just what we can carry on our bikes <laughs> yeah so yeah it wasn't necessarily like a hard like oh we're going like full-time mobile all of a sudden mm-hmm. just sort of grew grew naturally and uh but when we did do this camp we did like fully you know didn't have a storage unit didn't have weren't renting a place or anything anymore wow and that was 2016 so it was a little bit of a jump uh and there was a couple things to figure out as far as to how we we're going to work effectively and keep computers charged and <laughs> get internet and all that kind of yeah. stuff and and uh and then, yeah, in the pandemic sort of forced us to upgrade to a bigger trailer where we had, uh, uh, you know, we couldn't spend as much time in coffee shops and libraries and mm. even friends' houses, it seemed like um, at the time, especially at the beginning. And so we got a bigger trailer that has a bathroom and more power and cell boosters. And, and uh, this year got the Starlink uh, satellite internet set up, which has been pretty amazing, too. So yeah, it's just been kind of a progression, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting that yeah, you kinda you kinda started from like something really tiny, like living off your bike to living, you know, out of a minivan, which, you know, by comparison is a step up. I think a lot of us imagine like, you know, we're living in a house or an apartment or whatever, and imagine like going down in terms of our space and <laughs> and our yep. lifestyle. But yeah, for you it's like you know, get really, really low. And then whatever you do from there is going to, is going to feel like an upgrade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that's maybe a little bit of a trick that we kind of told ourselves anyway. Yeah. Uh, Seems to, to have to worked. Make it, yeah. Like make it seem luxurious and be like, Oh, look, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it rains, we don't have to like look for a tree to hide under. Because we have a tree. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's the little things. Yep. So yeah, do you have any tips for people who are like what when people find out that you're living this lifestyle and and you know maybe they've considered it, what are the things that they're most concerned about that they're like, "Oh, well, how do you do this?" Like what what is the biggest biggest tips you can give to people who are are thinking about doing that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask us about internet, like how we how we're able to work mm-hmm. and and power computers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, Starlink is pretty amazing, but you don't need it. Um you know, we, we, uh, just operated off our phones. We just using them as a hotspot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no dedicated, uh, um, Wi-Fi thing or anything. Mm-hmm. And that actually worked pretty well. Um, you know, you're limited to camping somewhere where there's cell signal, right. but, uh, but, uh, well, and it depends on what your job is. You know, neither of us do a lot of high, necessarily high bandwidth stuff. If you're mm-hmm. doing zoom meetings and that all the time, uh, something like Starlink makes a lot more sense. And it would have been pretty challenging to do that, uh, without it, uh, just with cell based stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you're just programming and logging into servers or, you know, sending emails and stuff, that's pretty low bandwidth. Uh, right. And, and powering stuff is super easy with solar. Um, it's amazing how little power you can get away with, you know, in any kind of a mobile setup. Mm-hmm. But, uh, tips for going, yeah, going to the full nomad. The one thing I would say, I guess, is that uh, to realize that there's many, many different ways to do it, um, mm. and to not look at any one particular 
uh, person or YouTube or, or anything and be mm-hmm. like, that's what mobile life is, right? Yeah. That there's ways to do it that are super cheap and are way cheaper than living in even a cheap apartment. Mm-hmm. There's ways to do it that are expensive, more expensive than <laughs> owning a house. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and everything in between. And there's ways to do it where you're camping free and or staying in campgrounds or RV parks or staying in one place for a long time or moving around. You know, there's so much variety in it. Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing I would say to someone considering it uh, anew is just don't, don't have a set idea of how it's going to be. Like mm-hmm. you have to kind of find your, your style of, of camping and, and mobile living. It's really hard to know what that's going to be uh, without trying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're the kind of person that, yeah, wants to stay in, you know, maybe move twice a year or two, three times a year, or whether you're going to want to move around and really follow the good weather and, and, and explore a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, don't have any hard expectations of what those decisions are going to be until you get out there. And so I guess with that in mind, go with the cheaper way of starting it. Mm-hmm. And that way you're not too invested in the one style because depending on how those things all shake out, you know, then a van work makes more sense than a big RV and, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of those decisions could be different. So, yeah. 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 That's a good point. Everybody's got like different interests and priorities and, but it is fascinating to me that the first thing you said that, that people ask about is like internet and charging devices. Whereas <laughs> yep. I, I don't know, I assumed it would be like, where do I go to the bathroom or like, how do I get food and cook it? Like, you know, more basic <laughs> functions but i guess this is 2022 and so yeah we you know we have different priorities yeah yeah i think that's right (laughs) especially if you're trying to work you know then internet becomes pretty important too exactly right everybody has different work situations and yeah responsibilities that they they still have to maintain so when you go for a ride in a new place, do you rely on GPS or a smartphone or, or do you also pack a paper map? Um, I would say like if I'm doing a new, a new route I haven't done before, um, the main thing I would rely on is a well-researched GPX track, mm-hmm. you know, that okay. I, I drew, I figured out, uh, or I pieced together from other other people's tracks and, mm-hmm. and research. And so mm-hmm. once I've got that loaded on my, my garment on my handlebars or on my phone, if it's on foot, um, you know, then I'm pretty confident in that track and that I can follow it and make small adjustments. But that's the main thing I ever would rely on. It's pretty rare that I actually carry a paper map. Mm-hmm. Paper maps are fun to look at and good for daydreaming and you know, big idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely, we have a good collection that we haul around. Uh, even though we're mobile, uh, pretty heavy, uh, box of <laughs> maps and guidebooks and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and they're worth it. They're totally awesome. But, uh, yeah, to carry them is, I would say is pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure how you would answer that. Like I could see you going either way, like being a traditionalist or, or being, you know, fully invested in, in this digital world that we're in. And like, so do you, do you have like a backup though? Like that's one of the things I'm starting to think about is, yeah. I mean, what do we do when our device fails? And I mean, I guess you, you know, better than anybody, like what are the chances of that happening? But yeah. What would you do if your, your GPS just 
stopped working for some reason. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can even just smash it, like crash on a, on a rock oh, or right. something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it's something long enough, um, I, probably the best thing to do is other, you know, you can carry a spare device, which, yeah, if I'm on my own, maybe I'd have it on my Garmin and also on my phone mm-hmm. and prefer to navigate off the handlebars, but if you need to look at the phone. But, mm-hmm. um, the other thing is, re- is relying on other people that you might have that are coming with you. So, uh, you know, like a couple of days ago, I did a ride with, uh, Esther and a friend that was camping with us and I just emailed that GPX file out mm-hmm. so that it was on multiple people's, uh, devices. Partly for as a failsafe, but also just because then they could help me navigate it if I am not paying attention and miss a turn or something. But uh, yeah, but a paper, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I myself don't often consider bringing a map. <laughs> I don't know why exactly. I haven't, I haven't that. brought one in years. But I mean, I feel yeah. like there was a point where I was like, oh, I really like paper, and I still kind of appreciate that. But I guess there was a point where I just said, no, like I, I don't need that anymore. Yeah, it's not that they're that heavy, really, but um, I don't know. For some reason, yeah, I guess I've just been my whole adventure. Even my whole adventure in life, I've pretty much been a GPS guy. Uh, when I started doing new new rides outside of established trail systems, um, yeah, I was always loading tracks and looking at tracks, and so that's just the way I operate. Um, so yeah, maybe I'm just not old enough to. <laughs> <laughs> You're digital native, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, something, something like that. Yes. <laughs> so what do, what are you planning for your next adventure? Be it an outdoor adventure or business venture. Ha! Huh, yeah. Uh, well, we just booked our tickets to go to New Zealand for this winter. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so I think that's going to be the big, the next big adventure. Um, which How are you going to get your trailer to over there? Yeah, yeah, I wish. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, we, we started going to New Zealand in the winters, um, once we had the scamp, um, just because I'm not that interested in camping, um, when the days are so short. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're down somewhere warm like Arizona, uh, it's still winter, you know, and it's still mm-hmm. quite dark. And, uh, one of the really cool things about being mobile is that we don't have expenses really at home so we can park the back in the u.s you know we can park the trailer and and our uh at a friend's house or something and Mm -hmm. not be paying for mortgage and stuff and then go to new zealand and be relatively unencumbered so yeah taking advantage of that it's pretty cool and then um yeah getting another summer solstice solstice instead of a winter solstice Mm -hmm. is uh, (laughs) two yeah two summers that's awesome yeah Yep. And then, yeah, just continue exploring and riding bikes and scrambling around on foot, doing a little pack rafting down there as well. Um, yeah, should be awesome. Well, Scott, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. It was great catching up and, and hearing about all the cool projects that you're a part of. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. It was great being on here and yeah. Can't, uh, it'll be interesting to see how single tracks goes in the next 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, you can find out more about uh, Topo Fusion and track leaders uh, online, and we'll have links uh, to those in the show notes. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.